right now I have the pleasure of introducing again Mike Eller, our pastor of worship and spiritual formation, who will be speaking today. Hey, thanks. Woohoo. Lots of great stuff going, coming up, huh? Thanks to all those that are sharing this morning. You're stuck with me a little bit longer here, so I get the, the privilege of preaching this morning in addition to doing music, and I cherish those times to be able to speak to you, not just through song, but in this form. So I want to start by sharing, um, there's a greeting in, in high church liturgy that has always been pretty personal, uh, personally meaningful for me. Anytime I've been able to worship in like a mainline tradition or, or a Catholic setting, um, and this, this phrase comes with a response, so it's kind of a test for you this morning to see who, who knows this as well. Okay, so here it is. You ready? The Lord be with you. Okay, you, you heard some of the smattering of those answers. Let's try that again. The Lord, the Lord be with you. Okay, yes, very good. This, this greeting has a, a fancy term. It's known as the domis, Dominus Vobiscum. Everybody say that fancy phrase with me. Dominus Vobiscum. All right, I'll give you one more chance. Dominus Vobiscum. Yes, and for many worshiping congregations, this is the church's hello. It's a call and response that typically opens the service, and many times they use it just before communion as well. And its usage dates way back to as late as the, the 6th century CE. So churches have been using this greeting for millennia. It reminds me of a joke, actually, I heard once. So uh, if you'll bear with me, a priest steps on the, micro uh, on the platform one Sunday and starts shouting into the microphone, is this thing on? Is this thing on? And he's tapping on it and making lots of sounds into the mic, and he finally says, something is wrong with this mic. And the congregation replies, and also with you. <laughs> you are a little slow this morning. I thought you would catch that. All right, trying to wake you up here. Dominus Vobiscum. If you don't learn anything else from this sermon, you'll at least have uh, taken a little bit of Latin away today. For those familiar at all with church history, you know that Latin was the dominant language for the, the, the church, the Christian church, for the first few centuries. And the Bible was, was translated into Latin by St. Jerome in the late 4th century. That's, that's a, a long time ago. That version is known as the, the Latin Vulgate. And if we were to be grammatically sensitive with this phrase, the Lord be with you today, we would point out that the original Latin does not include the verb to be. More literally, that phrase would have been Lord with you. And when the Bible was translated into English, the language of the common people, that phrase was set in the subjunctive mood, which is uh, kind of a wish or de a desire. And so they added in that word, be, the Lord, be with you. And when spoken that way, the minister proclaims it as sort of a prayer or a hope, which in itself can be this beautiful conversational blessing that the minister has with the congregation. But the better translation of that phrase is, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Can you hear how that, that one word change can make a, a quite significant difference? One way sounds fairly tentative, maybe even wishful, hopeful. And the other way is this, this strong promise of a fact. 
it makes me wonder if something has been lost in translation. And I want to tell you why that, that phrase comes to mind for me in this current series of a new kind of Christian. And it's this. A mature, transformative Christian in our time will see the unquestionable presence of God in all things. In all things. Think about how a fish relates to water swimming out in the middle of the ocean. It doesn't question where water is or where water isn't. It experiences water as its whole reality. And I think that's kind of this idea of God in all things. I grew up in a Pentecostal charismatic tradition. For some of you that know my story, you know that. So um, a lot, I was thinking back this week just about some of those experiences and some of the language that we use. And many times uh, when we had worship experiences, it would go something like this. We were praying for hours and hours and pleading and pouring out our hearts to God. And then, and then what? God showed up, right? Or how about when someone describes a moving experience as being a God moment? And I do want to say that there are many times in my life when I have those experiences that seem particularly saturated with the presence of the divine. Maybe it's in an encounter with nature. I think about the many times that I've driven through the Blue Ridge Parkway in Northern Virginia and just seeing those sights. I think about the many nights growing up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, that I, I took my guitar to the beach at night and I just sat there listening to the waves and seeing the stars above the water that was kind of shining with the moonlight. Those kind of moments. Sometimes for me it's been a, a song or poetry or maybe experiences with friends and strangers. And I think we all know what that's like to be in that liminal space where, where God feels particularly close to us in that moment. It's those burning bush encounters that leave us as changed people. And when we say we had a God moment or, or that God showed up in our midst or we plead for the presence of God, I fear we are teaching this idea of a separated God or maybe we believe it ourselves. And it images this God that, that arrives the God that arrives in a particular place, maybe to a particular people at a particular time. And here's why I think that's problematic. If God shows up, then God is not always with us. And if God shows up for this particular situation, then where was God at that time and in that situation? Do those questions sound familiar? Yeah, that's the old age question of the problem of evil. That's the churchy phrase when we try to understand where is God in the darkest times and why does God choose to act and not to act. And those questions were at an all-time high really in the 1940s with the horrors of Hitler's concentration camps. I grew up in Germany and I remember going to Dachau and just seeing those scenes and those sights and walking through those cabins and the furnace and, and the, the, the mass grave sites. And Eli Wiesel, the Jewish Holocaust survivor and author, recounts a moment in his autobiography, Night, of a group standing in front of this boy on the gallows. And if you can imagine, just an unbelievable evil sight, right? If there was a location and a place and time that could be said to exhibit the absence of God, it might be there. And Wiesel said, behind me, someone asked, where is God? Looking at this boy. 
And after they saw him struggle for a while, this voice from behind said even louder, where is God now? And Wiesel writes in his book, I heard a voice within me answer, where is God? God is here, hanging here on this gallows. And that's a hard concept for the God showed up crowd, is it not? To see that the Lord is with us at all times and all places will, will require a new conception of the divine. Against a Marvel comic God where God arrives on the scene just in the nick of time. Against an exclusive God that shows up for some and leaves others in pleading in the dark. Or against an angry parent God that is withdrawing God's self for some kind of punishment or lesson. No, the Lord is is with you and with me in, in the dark and the unfathomable, in the calm and in the storm. And what Wiesel was in essence saying about this boy on the gallows was that God was abiding with him in solidarity as to be the one hanging alongside him. And this shouldn't be hard for us to conceptualize when we understand that God humbly Endure the brutality of the cross out of solidarity with humanity. And God wasn't only present, but God was center stage. God doesn't just spectate from the side, but God joins the suffering ones. And I think sometimes it's easier for some to believe in a God who arrives and vanishes because faith is constructed on victory and success. It's harder to explain God's presence when everything is falling apart. What could that say about an all-powerful God? And where is the success for the Almighty God when evil seems to be rampant and winning all around us? It's probably easier in those times to just think of God withdrawing himself or excusing himself from the situation. And this morning, I think we need a new vision for seeing. I think we need the vision of Jacob. Jacob in the Old Testament was the Hebrew patriarch, the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac and Rebekah. You remember this, this character. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is said to be on the way to Haran, and when he, it starts getting late in the day, so he pulls up this, this rock, as one does, and he lays down on the rock to go to sleep. Do you remember this story in Genesis? He dreams of God being beside him and committing him to give him this promised land and to be with him and blessing him that his offspring will be as the grains of sand and that this offspring will spread to the east and the west and the north and the south and, and all the families of earth are going to be blessed through Jacob's offspring. And then in this vision, God says these words, Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Know that I am with you. There's that word again, with. And will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you. And I think Jacob felt that in his heart, but God needed him to know that in his mind as well. Jacob knew how God could show up as an epiphany or maybe this God moment to jolt him back to life, but, but God needed him to internalize this abiding, continual presence that would be with Jacob, not just on the mountaintop, but also in the valley. 
And in the text in Genesis 28, it says that Jacob wakes up from his dream. And this is the part that always sticks with me. And Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And after he makes this proclamation, he anoints the rock and calling it Bethel. We might have heard that term before. This was just to mark the experience of how God shows up or God reveals God's self to Jacob in this moment. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. Jacob wakes up to a new reality. And it was never an issue of God's absence. This was really a vision problem, was it not, for Jacob? Don McPherson was working in a science lab to develop eye protection for, for surgeons who use lasers when he accidentally discovered a fix for colorblindness. After engineering this new eye protection invention, he hands a pair of glasses to a friend, not realizing that this colorblind friend for the first time would see a vivid distinction in color. And you see his friend was red-green colorblind, which is common in about one out of 12 males. And after putting on those pair of glasses, his friend saw this orange cone standing out in a green field, something he never would have noticed before. And this was kind of an aha moment for McPherson. And at that point, his company, Enchroma, was born. And since stumbling upon this correction, Enchroma has helped tens of thousands of colorblind people who could see the world in a whole new, vibrant way. And this means a lot to me, and I'm fascinated by it because I'm colorblind. Maybe you are too. And it's amazing to pull up all of these emotional videos on YouTube of people seeing these, these bright, distinct colors for the first time, if you can imagine that. These 70-year-old seniors, these teenagers, even these little children. And you could imagine how the world just pops in a whole new way. And I, I think it would just be life-altering, seeing colors for the first time in that way. And I believe a new kind of Christian in our time will need a corrective lens through which to see the world. And when we realize that God is everywhere and always present, the world becomes enlivened in this sort of colorblind, taken away kind of way. And maybe even filled for you with awesome wonder as it has been for me. It may be like seeing those colors of the spectrum for the first time. And I want to stay with that metaphor of a corrective lens for a moment and think about the gift that we are given through the contemplative tradition, this call to non-dual awareness or consciousness. Are you familiar with these terms? I think we've talked about these terms a little bit around here at the river. It's this idea that there is no separation between the secular and the sacred. These aren't two distinct spheres in which God resides in one and God is absent in the other. Non-duality resists seeing these realities as such. There is no distinction. In fact, religion itself, this systematized way of doing spirituality or going to some place to practice your spirituality or being with a certain type of people, that's a relatively new concept. I took a whole class on it last fall at Union Seminary. It's just fascinating. blew my mind. 
before modernity, all of life was really bound up in the religious. There wasn't this sacred, secular divide. It was just life. This is what we do. Think about fish and water again. In fact, if you were to ask somebody that was living in the Middle Ages, are you religious, that person would probably look at you like you had two heads. It just The concept would not make sense to them. Once modernity came along with the agendas of colonization and tribalism, it pushed us to create this divide between the secular or the civic life and sacred or religious life because that served the purposes of a Christianized European West to be able to put people in categories. And then once we do that, we can what? We can subjugate them and see them as less than. A person transformed by Christ will begin to see life in a non-dual way. And as they say, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Paul puts it this way. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were all called to purpose one hope. There is one Lord Jesus, one living faith, one ceremonial washing through baptism, and one God who is above all and through all and in all. And this was really a radical new idea. This, this idea that God was ubiquitous and saturating the entire world. It's like when the psalmist wrote, where can I go to flee from your presence? There is no place. God is above all and through all and in all. That was really radical to the common understanding of the divine at that time. Paul says there's no separation. God is all in all. I really like how Richard Rohr puts it. He says, The Christian vision is that the whole world is a sacred temple. And I think if we get that, that the whole world is, is God's dwelling place and everywhere we look we see God, that is this non-duality. That's the new lens we have to see things through. So why is all this so important to me? I, I'm kind of on a soapbox here this morning because I think talking with friends and, and strangers and just noticing things in the world, we get separation anxiety, do we not? So if God is a separated being, we have to construct ways of getting to God or somehow to convince God to come to us. And so we develop these morality systems, right? These show up as like binaries, we, you know, saints and sinners, uh, saved and heathen, lost and found. And we hope that FOMO will be enough to bring people into a relationship with their creator as if we are the gatekeepers of that. And really, fear and shame have to be part of the equation as movers to get people toward a dislocated God. And this rubs me the wrong way because the whole structure puts the onus on us to invite God into our presence. It's all very self-centered. Yet if God is all in all, then every person that we meet already houses the spark of the divine. This is beautifully captured in that word namaste. Do you know this greeting? It blew my mind. This greeting actually means this. The divine in me bows to the divine in you. Isn't that a beautiful idea? The divine in me bows to the divine in you. And we, we see the world then as Paul did that all God is all in all, and we have to then treat all creation as an expression of the divine. 
can you see how that could change just about everything we do when we approach it that way? Some of you just this morning need to hear that the Lord is with you, that there are no conditions. God is not with you if you are a Christian or if you've prepared your heart hard enough, if you've opened up your heart wide enough, if you've said the right things, if you go to the right church, if you're around the right people. No, God is with us, all of us, no matter what. And not just with us, but behind us and above us and and to the side, undergirding us, always before us. So maybe in those moments where we're driven to question, we can consider these suggestions. Instead of asking, where is God? Maybe we could ask, what has so arrested my vision that I can't see light and hope in this situation? Maybe instead of asking, why is God not speaking to me or answering me? We might ask, in what mode or way has God been prodding me but I have been tuned in to a different frequency. Instead of asking, why is God not helping me right now? We might ask, how can I help God be God by stepping into an invitation I might have missed? So this new vision will require a whole new set of questions as well. There's a lot of separation anxiety in our world today. And it, it makes me uh, think of this metaphor that's been so helpful for me to see God as a caring parent. And we're very familiar with seeing God as a father, right? The language is everywhere. But as I close this morning, I want you to consider along with me this idea of God as a nurturing mother. Now, we know that God isn't female or male, and we try to preach that around here. God is really the original non-binary, but there are traits common to mothers that we can assign to this nurturing image of the divine, and I want us to hang on to these ideas. We're going to actually explore them in a song in just a moment. I love the words in Hosea 11. We read of this mother God. It says, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, and Ephraim is a part of the people of Israel. I took them up in my arms, and they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with bonds or bands of love, and I was like to them, like those who lift infants to their cheeks. I bent down to them and fed them. And I, I love that, that depiction of God just this mother God that is not far off would never leave her young but is intimately bound up with creation as this mother to her offspring. And maybe there's another metaphor that's even coming to mind for you this morning. Hang on to those life-giving metaphors that, that remind us of the nearness of God. So if you'll allow me, I want to close with that phrase that we opened with, but in a slight different way. So if you'll give your response, the Lord is with you. Let's try that again. The Lord is with you. And aren't we glad? Namaste.